What does it mean to be redeemed by the blood of Jesus? If you think that it means that Jesus shed his blood to pay God in order to forgive us for our sins, you will want to listen to this podcast episode. Hey, I'm Jeremy Myers, and this is the Redeeming God podcast. Thank you for listening. We often in church and Christian circles like to sing and talk about redemption and forgiveness. But I've discovered that few Christians really understand what the Bible teaches about these two topics. And so we're going to going to look at both in our study today of Ephesians 1, verses 7 and 8. We're going to see that although we are redeemed by the blood of Jesus, this does not mean that the blood of Jesus was used to pay God for our sins. God does not need to be paid off. You know, God's not this this mafia leader who demands payment for protection. Instead, the redemption of Jesus uh, shows us how to live free from sin. Uh, and, And also, we're going to see this is related to forgiveness. It shows us how to live free from sin as well. And we'll be talking about those two twin concepts from our study of Ephesians 1, 7, and 8 today. Now, before we do that, though, I do want to talk a little bit about current events, and uh, we're in this sort of ongoing series of current events talking about Dr. Vadi Baucom's book, Fault Lines. It's a fantastic book. I highly recommend you read it. It's very insightful and timely, considering what has been going on in the United States and even around the world, well, really for about almost the last decade, but especially over the last five or six years, uh, and specifically in relation to critical race theory. I don't know if you're up to date on this, or you've been seeing some states say we are going to uh, push and teach critical race theory in our schools, and others, other states say no, we're not. And so there's various churches also that are taking positions on this and pastoral leaders. Uh, I, I highly recommend you read, wherever you are on this debate, read Fault Lines by Dr. Balcom, okay? It's, it's fantastic. In last week's episode, last week's study, we uh, I briefly talked about just the introduction of, of this book, Fault Lines, and sort of where uh, Dr. Balcom introduced critical race theory, defined it, and also showed why critical race theory is so destructive, so damaging, not only to our culture, but primarily and especially to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to our churches. Uh, it's, it's a prophetic book, I would say that, about this book by, by Dr. Balcom. So today we're going to briefly just look, sort of summarize the chapters one and two of his book. Uh, and maybe a little bit into three. Uh, in chapters one and two, it's really sort of just an introduction, a story, a background story of Dr. Balcom himself. Sort of how he, uh, the story about how he grew up in black America and how he became a Christian. He was not raised a Christian, but uh, he talks about his conversion to Christianity and his journey towards seminary and as a pastor, eventually how he ended up moving to Zambia in Africa to teach and minister there and how that has helped him with his perspective on African-American issues and studies and Black American, all sorts of things like that, okay? He is an expert on these topics, and he speaks from personal experience on this. Uh, He also explains in these opening chapters how he became aware of critical race theory, CRT, and how he arrived at his views, especially this view that CRT, critical race theory, is so destructive to the gospel and damaging to the church. 
Okay, so uh, that's sort of chapters one and two. Chapters three, I would consider it one of the strongest and most interesting and insightful chapters in the book. In fact, if I could read the entire chapter to you, I would, but uh, I've never liked it when people read chapters in their podcasts. I'm not going to, even when it's their own book, so I'm not going to do that. Let me just try to summarize what he discusses in chapter three. It's basically, uh, he obliterates, let's just put it this way, uh, he obliterates and demolishes this false narrative, and it is a false narrative, that exists in our country, and in fact, uh, in many of our churches today, this false narrative that black people are getting hunted down and killed by police, right, in great numbers, uh, that it's open season on black people, you probably heard people say that, um, that the murder of unarmed black people is state-sanctioned. Um, that's what chapter three is about. And he, he talks about this theory and sort of uh, how it came about. And also then he shows why it is not true. At the beginning of this chapter, he says the following. When I'm evaluating people's testimonies and pleas, and when people are shouting justice for George, Ahmed, Brianna, Trayvon, or anyone else, I always want to bear in mind the words of John 7:51. Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? I also want to remember that the one who states his case first seems right until another comes and examines him. That's Proverbs 18, 17. Which is why if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Proverbs 18, 13. Look, wise words there. Most people in the United States, most Americans, including most Christians, have only heard one side of the story, the media version of this story, the Black Lives Matter version of the stories about the deaths of of George and Ahmed and Breonna and Trayvon and, and many of these other victims of violence. And it is violence. I'm not denying that. But still, most people have only heard half of the stories. And so in this chapter, Dr. Balcom, he goes on to examine the deaths of George Floyd, Tamir Rice, Philandro Castile, Michael Brown, Breonna Taylor, and many others. And he shows through reported documentation, police reports, judge, jury, uh, news articles, all sorts of things, so that what is chanted and repeated at the riots what is repeated on the news broadcasts, and even sadly from some pulpits in America, most of it is flat out wrong. Uh, He goes on to point out that despite all the news attention that is given to the deaths of these black people, uh, there are actually far more examples of deaths of unarmed white people at the hands of police. And in fact, some of the stories of these deaths of unarmed white people are far, far worse than what happened to many of the black people. Um, for example, have you heard of Tony Timpa? Probably not. Nobody is remembering. Say his name, Tony Timpa. Right? He was a 32-year-old schizophrenic uh, in, in Texas, and he called the police on himself because he had gone off his meds and he needed help. Now, like George Floyd, the similarities are almost its striking, really. Uh, Timpa was handcuffed by the police, by the security guard, and then for nearly 14 minutes... Uh, He pled with the police officers saying, you're going to kill me. You're going to kill me, right? Like, I can't breathe. But in his case, it was, you're going to kill me because of the way they were treating him. But the police videos show that they they only mocked him. They did nothing to help him. They made jokes about what he was saying. And eventually, sadly, Tony Timpa did die. 
uh, but no officers were charged or convicted for his death. Now, why not? Because Tony Tempa was white, and his death doesn't fit the narrative. Uh, few people even know his name. There's no rallies, no riots, no banners, no fundraisers, nothing. Uh, and, and Tony Tempa's case is not alone. Dr. Balcom uh, mentioned several others in his book at various places. There are many, many others just like him. And so once again, here he's showing that although the, the, the details of the cases surrounding the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and, and Trayvon Martin and Philandro Castile and others, uh, while, while many people have not heard both sides of the stories on those cases, it's even less likely that you hear anything about the stories about the deaths of unarmed white people. And there's far more of them than there are the deaths of, of unarmed black people. Okay, and, and so he goes into this, and why, why are people, why is the media, why are certain politicians hiding half of the story on the death of the unarmed black people, and 100% of the story on the death of unarmed white people? It's because they have an agenda, they have a narrative. The death of white people at the, at the hands of police, brutality, or whatever you want to call it, that's a completely different discussion. You know, white people and black people are, are facing death at the hands of police, then, then you know, maybe, maybe something does need to be done about that. But let's get our story straight first. And Dr. Balcom has had this conversation with many people before, and so he knows the common objection to it. Uh, and one of the common objections, of course, is that, well, okay, so maybe a few more or more white people are getting killed than black people, but but there's far more white people in the United States than there are black people. Black, uh, the population is only roughly 13% of the United States population. And so even if it was 50-50, it isn't. But even if it was 50-50, that's still proportionately, right? It's disproportionate to the percentage of black people. And he goes into crime statistics and things like that. But then he does a masterful thing and compares it with age and men versus women and just points out that this this approach of choosing one demographic uh, perspective and saying that black people are being killed by police, uh, it just doesn't make sense logically or realistically, statistically, or really any way you look at it. The, way, the reason it's being discussed and pressed and argued and talked about all over the news is because there are some people who, for whatever reason, they want to create division, they want to create strife in our country, and this false narrative helps them gain money, helps them gain power, helps them get reelected, helps them stay in control. That's what it comes down to. And that's why, following this critical race theory approach to society and culture, is so destructive to the gospel because it's based on division and strife and greed and power and control, all of the things that Jesus rejected. So if we are going to follow the way of Jesus, we need to be working for the things that lead to peace and reconciliation. And critical race theory does not help those things occur. Okay? So, uh, look, I, that's chapter three. <laughs> and uh, obviously there's a lot more. That was a brief, brief summary. You know what? I highly encourage you to get his book. Go to Amazon, wherever books are sold. It's a best-selling book right now. And uh, just go look for Fault Lines. There's also a link in the show notes and you can go get it. Bottom line is, though, remember the truth of Proverbs 18, 17. This is one of my life verses, by the way. I've always tried to live by this, by this verse, that the first to present his case seems right until another questions him. 
right? And this is not only true in politics, but it's true in theology and everything else. Don't just believe something because someone told you. Consider what the opposing views are. Read what they have to say about it. Listen to what, what others have to say. And now that you have both sides of the perspective, you can better make up your mind. Okay, so that's a little bit from Dr. Balcom's fantastic book, Fault Lines. Let's move on to a lesson from, or I'm sorry, a letter from a listener. You've got mail. So I had a, a, a listener send me the following question. He writes, I have been wondering about the nature of hell for a while. I'm a former Christian, and for years, I didn't fear the idea of hell. Perhaps now, as I've gotten older, and I realize I'm not immortal, the fear of potentially going to hell scares me. However, I don't think someone should come back to Christianity because of fear of hell. That is assuming hell is a place of torture. I've been thinking about Christianity again, but still have some objections. What does the hell course discuss? Okay, so first of all, I agree. Do not come back to Christianity out of a fear of hell. We do not worship a spirit of fear, but of love, okay? So uh, I would never, ever encourage people to scare people into the kingdom. You sometimes hear pastors say that, and that's why they... They claim to be preaching about hell. We need to scare people into the kingdom. Well, Jesus never did that. Paul never did that. Okay? We do not scare people into the kingdom. We, we woo them in. We invite them in. Okay? And there's lots of problems in Christianity. For the person who wrote this letter, I'm not sure why you might have left Christianity, um, but I imagine it was because some of the problems that you might have experienced in the church or with the pastor or your upbringing— probably some legalistic uh, activities and behaviors and teachings that you just didn't like. Maybe you struggled with some things in Scripture. Okay, there's a wide variety of reasons that people do that. And it's okay. Uh, that doesn't offend God, doesn't hurt God. He encourages us to question and challenge. Okay, so, uh, but I would encourage you to uh, seek some of these uh, answers to the questions that you have. And it looks like right now you have this question about hell. So, um, on the topic of hell, I 100% agree that um, <laughs> this teaching about it being a place of fiery torment and torture for people who don't believe in Jesus, it's really a horrendous, monstrous teaching. Um, God loves you unless, unless you don't love him back, then he wants to torture you, right? <laughs> oh yeah, that sounds like good theology. You can imagine a parent saying that to their child, I love you unless you don't love me back, in which case... I'm going to put you on the rack and torture you. Okay, I hope that if any parent said that to their child, you would call the police on them and have that parent arrested. That's child abuse. God is not a child abuser. It's one of the reasons I did write my book, What is Hell? And the person who wrote in this, this letter asked about the course. There is a course in my discipleship group on hell, but it's based on a book. And the book is called What is Hell? And it's pretty much available anywhere, Amazon or wherever. Um, and then I, I built the course off it. Now, if you are part of my discipleship group, then and you take the course, What is Hell? The book, you can download the book, a PDF version of the book for free uh, as part of that course. That's what I do with all of my courses if there's a book related to it. Anyway, the book and the course are available. But basically, in, in both, the book and the course, I begin by sort of surveying the history of hell, where it came from, uh, it's the three common views on hell, which I'll come back to in just a minute. Then I look at several of the Greek and Hebrew terms in the Bible that have sometimes been thought to refer to hell, such as Gehenna or Hades, Sheol, which is the Hebrew term, uh, the lake of fire, outer darkness, you know, even the fire imagery in scripture, that sort of a thing. 
Okay, and I, I, I define all of those terms from Scripture. And then I look at several key passages, several of the key texts, the problem texts in the Bible that many people think uh, the Bible is, uh, that is used to refer to hell. And I talk about many of those. Finally, then, I close the book by basically providing my own view on hell, what I think the Bible teaches on hell, having considered all the evidence in Scripture. Okay? And uh, I don't end up at the book with any of the three major views on hell. Okay? There are three major views on hell. The first is, probably the most common, is called infernalism. Uh, it's the, the view of eternal conscious torment. It's the idea that most people think of when they think of hell, which is God's going to send unredeemed, unregenerate, you know, the damned people to this place of burning and suffering torment where they will scream in agony for all eternity. That's the very common view that uh, in some circles on hell, which many people have heard of and are familiar with. The other two views, maybe not so common, maybe more common, depending on your circles that you came from. One is universalism. This is the idea that there is no hell, uh, and so everybody's going to spend eternity with God. Or there is a hell, sort of a purgatory-type place, where you might go there and suffer for a while, but eventually you'll have all the bad stuff burned out of you, or you will repent, or whatever, and then end up with God in, in eternity in some way, shape, or form. Might be, you know, 10 years, might be 10 trillion years, who knows, but eventually you'll be redeemed. The third and final view is annihilationism. This is the idea where, again, either there's no hell or there might be, but either way, the people who end up there or the people who do not believe in Jesus, they will just eventually cease to exist. They will be annihilated. Okay, now, I do survey all three views in my book, and I end up rejecting all three. My book ends with, I look very carefully at all the texts, and I come away convinced, persuaded, that when the Bible talks about hell, it's not referring to anything really in the afterlife. Uh, it's primarily re referring to the experience that some people have in this life. You look around this world, and maybe even at various aspects or time periods in your own life, and people often are going through hell. Uh, maybe you're going through a period of hell. You just feel like everything in your life is garbage. You feel like everything in your life that you've worked hard for is burning up. You feel like your life is around your feet in ashes. Okay. And all of that is very biblical terminology for this concept of hell. And so when scripture invites us to rescue, deliver, uh, save souls from hell, it's not saying necessarily make sure that people believe in Jesus so that when they die, they don't go to hell and burn forever and screaming torment for all eternity. That's not what those passages are teaching. Those passages are saying, look, there's hurting and suffering people all around you. Now, maybe some of that pain they brought on themselves through sin. Maybe some of that pain was brought on them by somebody else because of somebody else's sin. But re whatever, regardless, it's a painful, horrible, yes, torturous experience for some people. And we as followers of Jesus need to do what we can to rescue and deliver and save and heal and restore and reconcile those people to Jesus Christ, to fellowship with one another, okay, to the life that God actually wants for them. God doesn't want people to live in hell in this life. He wants them to experience the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God in their life here and now. And that's the biblical teaching on hell. Okay, so anyway, I just gave the book away, but uh, hopefully that encourages you to get the book and read it. Or if you're part of my discipleship group, take the online course on hell and get the book for free that way.
Okay. Now, if you say, Jeremy, that's ridiculous. I don't believe that. Look, let's go back to that Proverbs 18, 17 passage. Maybe it's, it's funny. I, I was a while back reading some of the reviews of this book on Amazon and all of the one star reviews. I'm 100% convinced they didn't even read the book. You know, maybe they read the first chapter or whatever, but they did not read all the way through because they accused me of saying things and teaching things that I say the exact opposite in the book. Okay, so and lots of these Christians, they like to leave, oh, this guy's wrote a book about hell, and he doesn't believe hell exists, and blah, blah, blah. Well, I believe hell exists. I'm very clear about that in the book, just not the way you do. Okay, you reviewer on Amazon who didn't read the book and gave me a one-star review. So anyway, I don't know what your views are on this, uh, but, but look, Proverbs 18, 17, the first to present his case seems right until another questions him. So uh, consider all the views, consider all the perspectives, take the book up, give it a read, and see what you think. Hopefully you will uh, move away from this fear-based idea of God and eternity and move towards love. Okay, so if, uh, the, the person who sent in the question wanted to remain anonymous, so I haven't mentioned his name, but hopefully that answer sort of helps you and that you will continue to seek your questions, look for answers to your questions because your questions are good. And I believe that as you find the truth, as you find answers to the questions, they, uh, truth will always lead us to Jesus. And so uh, just keep pursuing truth wherever it is found. Okay, let's move on to our study then finally of Ephesians chapter 1 verses 7 and 8. So Ephesians 1, we've been looking at Ephesians, sort of verse by verse, by verse through Ephesians. And we're still in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, 4 through 11, is really one long sentence in the Greek language. And it contains a long list of some of the great riches and blessings we have in Jesus Christ. Okay, we've looked at some of these before, such as we looked at election in Ephesians 1, 4, and predestination and adoption in Ephesians 1, uh, 5 and 6. We're looking at Ephesians 1, 7, and 8 today, and there's two more blessings here, two more riches uh, that, that God has given to us in Jesus Christ. And these are forgiveness and redemption, redemption and forgiveness. Uh, here's what the verses say, Ephesians 1, 7, and 8. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Okay. Now, really, there's many, many key words in these texts. Redemption, blood, forgiveness, sins, grace, wisdom, understanding. And you need to understand all of those words to properly understand this verse. Many of them I do cover in my Gospel Dictionary online course. But the two we're going to focus on in this podcast are the words redemption and forgiveness. I could spend time looking at the others, but we'll cover a lot of those others as we continue to work our way through Ephesians. Redemption. Let's look at redemption first then. Uh, Paul writes about we have redemption through his blood. What is this? All right, well, it's related to adoption. The, the term that Paul mentioned previously is adoption, adoption as sons. And go listen to the previous podcast on adoption to find out what adoption means in the Bible. It, biblical adoption, biblical times adoption, did not function the same way that modern adoption functions. It was completely different. Biblical time adoption, you did not adopt orphans. You did not adopt people off this, children off the street or from an orphanage or whatever, and bring them into your own house. 
Uh, I mean, maybe that occurred occasionally, but it wasn't really called adoption. Adoption was a legal transaction in biblical times in which you would adopt the son of another rich or powerful family. They already had parents. The son does. Or maybe you would adopt one of your own sons. Why would you adopt your own sons? Well, because you didn't want your inheritance to go to your eldest son. You wanted to go to the second son or the third son or the son of a a slave uh, servant that you might have. And so you would adopt one of your own sons as your heir. It's all about choosing someone to be an heir. Uh, and, And so when God adopts us as his sons, he's adopting believers. God does not adopt unbelievers to join his family. God adopts children, us, you and me, to be his heirs. That's what we covered in the previous study. Redemption is similar to that idea, okay? Uh, redemption occurs when God takes something that was already his and he buys it. <laughs> uh, so it's now twice his, in a sense. Okay, in the ancient world, uh, when a soldier, you know, in, in Paul's day, when a soldier was captured in battle, his country could buy him back from the enemy. Okay, so who does the soldier belong to? Well, technically, if you can talk about ownership, the soldier belongs to his home country. He gets captured in battle. Does he still belong to his home country? Well, yes, technically he does. He's just now captured and in a foreign country's army, military, okay, in their jail or prison or whatever. And so the, the, his home country can buy him back. When a family was in desperate financial situations, sometimes they might sell one of their children into slavery. Now, hopefully... If they, if they came into some money or things turned around for them, they paid off some of their debts, they could buy their child back out of slavery. There's laws for this in Leviticus, in Leviticus 25, to allow for this sort of thing even. Okay? So, um, you know, we do the same thing sort of today. We have pawn shops. What do you do at a pawn shop? Well, you can take your item into the pawn shop and sell it, but you can also pawn it. And if you pawn it, what they do is they give you a certificate of redemption. Okay, you take your signed baseball into the pawn shop, and they say, "Well, here's, you know, they're always going to undercut you, undersell you. Here's five bucks for your signed signed baseball. Maybe it's worth five hundred. Who knows?" And you get. I've never pawned anything. I don't know how it works, but I, I know the basic idea from watching some shows on TV and things. Um, but uh, I've been into pawn shops. Anyway, I digress. Um. So if you want your item back, though, let's say you get your money uh, from the pawn shop and two weeks later you get paid for your job. You're like, you know what? I want my baseball back. You go back there to the pawn shop. You give them your certificate of redemption. You give the money back, probably uh, with some interest or fees attached to it. And then you can get your baseball back. Okay, so as long as it's there and you pawned it, you still own it. They're just holding on to it for you and you can go buy it back. Similar thing happens with redemption. Uh, We belong to God, and God has bought us back, in a sense, through Jesus. Uh, Or Jesus bought us back, we could say that, through his blood. Now, here is where this this concept gets very confusing. Though this concept of buying and buying back makes some people think that there was a person or an entity to receive the payment from Jesus. Jesus redeemed us with his blood, so somebody, Jesus had to give his blood to somebody. And the two common theories on this are either Satan or God. Uh, some people think Jesus paid his blood payment to Satan. Satan is the one who demanded payment, so he made it. Some people say, no, 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 Jesus would never give a ransom to Satan, right? We don't, uh, we don't give ransoms, ransom to terrorists. 
So it must be, he must paid God. Get all that out of your mind. When Jesus redeemed us through his blood, he's not making a payment to anybody. Uh, This is sort of where the concept of redemption breaks down a little bit in this concept of buying back. Yes, we belong to God. Yes, we are now slaves to sin. Yes, Jesus redeemed us through his blood, but he's not paying anyone or anything. Okay, Uh, how does redemption through his blood work? I cover this a lot in my book, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus, where I basically argue that what Jesus accomplished on the cross could not have been accomplished in any other way. Jesus had to shed his blood. Why? The traditional Christian answer is Jesus had to shed his blood to buy forgiveness for us from God. God really, really, really wanted to love us and forgive us, but you know, he just couldn't because of that sin. So Jesus came along and he died on the cross and shed his blood because God had to kill somebody and so for our sin. And so God killed Jesus instead of us. And so now God can finally, because Jesus paid him off, God can finally love us and forgive us and accept us into his family. That's sort of the traditional Christian answer explanation, right? That's not really, that's not the way to read scripture on this. Uh, Yes, Jesus had to die, but the blood of Jesus, the death of Jesus on the cross was revelatory. It revealed something to us, something critically important that could not have been revealed to us in any other way. And the, the truth that Jesus revealed to us on the cross is that we humans are violent, and we love to kill people, and we do it in God's name. Whenever we go out to war, whenever we go kill people, whenever we oftentimes even put people in prison. You know, we do it in God's name. We, we say, well, we are enacting justice, right? God wants us to kill these people. Well, God wants us, those are his enemies. They really are enemies, but those are God's enemies, and he wants us to go to war with them. That's often the rationale that gets um, touted out, trotted out in churches, in pulpits, in politics, and everywhere else whenever we want to engage in violence against somebody else. We blame it on God. That's what Jesus was revealing. The traditionally, we say, well, of course, God's violent, and he wants us to kill them. But Jesus showed us, no, God is not violent. We are violent. We kill people. God doesn't want us to kill people. We kill people, and we do it in God's name. And if you say, yeah, duh, Jeremy, that's only, we only know that now because Jesus revealed it to us on the cross. Okay, it, it, Prior to Jesus, and even in most settings today, People do not realize, did not realize, that the victims they were killing and murdering and beating and enslaving uh, in God's name were generally not guilty of most of the things about which they were accused. Okay, It's a whole topic on that, teaching on that. I do cover it various places, nothing but the blood of Jesus, also in my Gospel Dictionary online course and so on, various links on my website, lots of places. Okay, the blood of Jesus had to be shed, but uh, not to buy forgiveness for us from God. You might say, what about Hebrews 9.22? Well, look, there's a whole article on my website on Hebrews 9.22. So uh, just go search redeeminggod.com, Hebrews 9.22, and you'll find that. All right, so uh, when you think about redemption then, don't think about it as God pay- or Jesus paying off God. As I said at the intro to this, this study, God's not a mafia leader, right, that we have to pay off to get protection from him. 
We don't need to pay off God in order to get him to forgive us our sins. We don't need to pay off God to get him to give us eternal life or love us again or anything like that. He's always loved and he's always forgive, for, forgiven us. The shed blood of Jesus did redeem us, but it redeemed us from our slavery to sin. It showed us the truth about our situation so that we can be set free from it, so that we can stop living and acting and behaving and thinking the ways that were destructive and damaging, not only to ourselves, but to our family and our health and our culture and society and pretty much everything in this world. Redemption through the blood of Jesus shows us how to no longer be slaves to sin and instead become friends with God. Okay? We have been redeemed, bought back, rescued, delivered from slavery to sin. We've been set free to love and serve God with our lives. Okay? That's redemption. Now, the concept of forgiveness is nearly identical. Uh, it, it's very interesting. That's why I'm covering both these terms in one study, because the two are so closely related. And you might not realize that because, again, most Christians do not understand the biblical concept of forgiveness. And surprise, surprise, I'm sorry, I don't mean to mention my Gospel Dictionary course so often, but look, I know that some of the things I cover a very surface way. And you might say, Jeremy, I need you to explain that more that's what the Gospel Dictionary is there for. Many of those lessons are an hour or two long. I go into great detail discovering, discussing the words and looking at many, many passages that talk about it to help you understand it. Forgiveness is not what most people think it is. Most people think of forgiveness as sort of, um, you know, God doesn't forgive you, and then because of the love of Jesus or something changed in your life, now he does forgive you. And, but there's conditions attached because, you know, if we don't forgive others their sins, then God won't forgive us. Or maybe if we don't confess and repent, then God won't forgive us. Okay, so there's all these sort of weird teachings in Christianity about how to know whether you're forgiven or not, and how to get forgiveness, how to make sure you keep forgiving. Okay, and it becomes very confusing for most people to know whether or not they're forgiven. Guess what? All of this can be cleared up. The confusion can be, can be blown away, swiped away swept away, if you understand one simple fact about biblical forgiveness, and it's this. Here's the simple fact. In the Bible, there are two kinds of forgiveness. Okay? You've probably heard people say, there's four loves in Greek. Well, guess what? There's two forgivenesses in Greek. And we don't know this because we read English and we only see the word forgiveness. The two types of forgiveness are this. There's a charizomai forgiveness. This is the first type. It's based on the grace, the charis. You hear the word, charizomai, charis. It's based on the grace of God. The charizomai forgiveness is 100% uh, universal, unconditional, free for everybody. Okay? Uh, God, through charizomai forgiveness, has always forgiven all people for all their sins. Even Hitler, the worst people person you can imagine, God has forgiven Hitler for every sin. 100%. Did Hitler ever confess and repent? Not that I know of. Did Hitler ever forgive others? Probably not. I mean, sometimes he may be. Okay, I'm getting, I'm digressing again. Okay, you might say, Jeremy, well, how's that? How's that not? Are you a universalist? No, I said earlier, I'm not a universalist. When we're talking about hell, uh, I'm not a universalist. Someone can be forgiven for all of their sins, but still not have eternal life. How's that? Because maybe they didn't believe in Jesus for it. We don't get eternal life because God has forgiven us for all our sins. We get eternal life by believing in Jesus for it. 
Okay, two very different concepts. So charizomai forgiveness, God has forgiven all people for all their sins throughout all time. Jesus did not have to die in order for God to extend this forgiveness. God has always forgiven because he is a forgiving God. Just his nature. This is charizomai. It's based on his grace, which is 100% conditional and free. And even see here in the context, Paul mentions grace. All of this comes from God's grace. Okay, that's the first type of forgiveness. And if you're reading your English Bibles and you don't have like a Greek... Um, word study manual or a, a parallel version Bible where you have the Greek and English next to each other and you don't know which. Well, generally you can tell pretty clearly from the context what type of forgiveness is in view. If you're seeing a passage that talks about free forgiveness, unconditional forgiveness, God just forgiving people based on his love, you can be pretty certain that charizomai forgiveness is in view. The second type of forgiveness is aphasis forgiveness. Charizomai is the first, aphasis is the second type of forgiveness. And in my opinion, this word should not be translated as forgiveness. It should be translated as release, uh, would be the best translation of this word, I think, because uh, it would help separate it from forgiveness, the free forgiveness, the charizomai forgiveness of, of God. Now, aphasis is interesting because it is not unconditional. Um, it, is it has conditions. For example, in the text where we read, if you don't forgive others for their sins, God won't forgive you. Well, guess what? Those are conditions attached to that type of forgiveness. You look in the context and it's a phasis. Uh, when, when the Bible talks about if you confess your sins, okay, and you will be forgiven. Well, there's a condition attached. So it's a phasis. And you go and you can check the Greek and you'll see that this is true. Okay, so what's the difference between a phasis forgiveness and Charizomai forgiveness. Well, already we're seeing that there's conditions attached. But Aphasis forgiveness is different. It's a release, as I said. Look, we can be freely forgiven, charizomai forgiven, for all our sins, past, present, and future, throughout all time. But does that mean you're still going to sin? Yep. You're still forgiven, but you still sin. And maybe you're going to develop patterns and habits of sinful behavior, destructive patterns and habits of sinful behavior. Well, how do you break free from those patterns, those destructive habits of sin? Aphasis, release. How can you get released from, from your slavery to sin? Well, confession is one step, one of the first steps. Repentance is another step. Uh, forgiving others, recognizing that you're a sinner and uh, God forgives you, so you should forgive others, okay? Uh, that's learning to forgive others helps you uh, be break free from from your sin, your slavery to sin, your bondage to sin. Okay, there's other things too, but you see, uh, it, it, the, the second type of forgiveness is more of a release. It's you've been freely forgiven by God, but you still sin. So what can you do about it? Uh, especially these patterns of destructive and, and habits of sin in your life, you need to learn a faces how to break free from those. Um, the power, the, the, the fellowship, the insights, the truth, the Holy Spirit, all these things that God has given to us to help us experience a faces forgiveness, the release from our sins. What type of uh, forgiveness does Paul mention here? This is the aphasis forgiveness that Paul has in mind here in Ephesians 1.7. This is aphasis forgiveness. Uh, and that makes sense because he's just talked about redemption, which we saw was breaking free from the patterns of sin in our life, especially this pattern of accusing and condemning and killing other people in God's name. Uh, how can we break free from that? Well, start off 
We need to experience forgiveness, better release from that. How? Well, admit it. That's a confession. Repent of the things you've done that might have led to that behavior, right? Learn how to change your mind, change your thinking. That's what repentance is. Uh, and, and, and there's numerous other things. And Paul will talk about a lot of these in the second half of Ephesians, in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. But there's numerous other passages in the Bible that talk about this too. There's steps, conditions, requirements to follow in order to experience release from your bondage of sin. And when you do that, you will be set free, you will be redeemed, you, so that you can, you can live as God wants you to live. So all that in mind, then you can see that redemption and aphasis, forgiveness, release, are very closely connected terms, which is why Paul mentions both of them here. Now, in the rest of the verse, let's just go real fast here. He talks about the, how this comes from the riches of God's grace, which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence. Okay? Grace, God's unmerited favor, his gifts towards us. This is, God has given us these gifts uh, freely because he loves us. And out of his wisdom and prudence, God is wise, and he wants uh, to make sure that he provides the best things for us. And so he did this, not because he's foolish, but because he's wise. And all of these terms are just further ways of describing why God gave us all of these gifts uh, and blessings that we have in Jesus Christ. It's, it's Paul's overarching theme in Ephesians 1. In fact, all three, the first three chapters of Ephesians. All of these gifts and blessings which God provided for us are due to his grace, his wisdom, and his prudence, his insight, his understanding. God knows what we need. He knows what you need to live your life the best, to the fullest way possible. And he has made sure to provide us with those things, provide us with everything we need for life and godliness. Okay? And so that's the truth of redemption and forgiveness here. We're going to continue to see more riches and blessings from God next time when we pick up in Ephesians chapter 1-9. Thank you so much for listening to me today. I hope you found this insightful and helpful and instructive and most of all, encouraging as you seek to follow Jesus into the world. Remember, if you have a question or comment about this podcast, pretty much anything on your mind, and you want to submit a question, just go to my website, redeeminggod.com, and scroll to the bottom where the con- you'll see the words contact me, and you can just click that, use the contact form, send in your question. Okay? Hey, thank you again. We'll talk to you next time as we pick up in Ephesians 1, 9.